Welcome to the From Point A podcast. I'm your host, Brian Corbett. This is a show about government officials transitioning in and out of government. It's not about politics, policy, or regulation. This is a conversation focused on careers, the decisions we make and didn't make, and the consequences that we have to deal with. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Our first guest is Ken Melman, and he almost needs no introduction. While getting his start as a young Hill staffer, Ken went on to lead President Bush's re-election campaign in 2004 and to serve as chairman of the National Republican Committee. Today, Ken is at the investment firm KKR, where he serves as global head of public affairs and as co-head of KKR Global Impact. So, Ken, we're sitting here in the beautiful KKR offices in New York, and I have to say, this is a long way from the conference room you had in Arlington or Crystal City when you ran the, the re-elect campaign in 0304, and, and that's where I want to start the conversation. I'm really curious how, within just a couple of years of having worked on the Hill for Kay Granger, a relatively new member of the House, how you positioned yourself and how you got that job as the, the campaign director in 03. Well, look, I think that most of what, much of what happens to us in life is uh, blessing and fortune and luck, depending on your perspective. And certainly I've been blessed throughout my life. First, I was blessed with unbelievable parents and a supportive family. Uh, I've been blessed my whole life, thank God, with good health. Uh, I've been blessed by uh, getting a great education. And so uh, I was working on Capitol Hill. I was the chief of staff for Kay Granger. I started working on Capitol Hill in 1995. Uh, then a couple years later, I became Kay's chief of staff. Kay was an awesome person to work with and learn from. Uh, she's someone that uh, really had already built a great career as mayor and as a business person and has now been a very successful member of Congress. During that period, I got to know then Governor Bush as well as some of the folks that worked with Governor Bush, including Karl Rove. And I was excited about opportunities to, when I was Kay's chief of staff, partner with Governor Bush and helped Governor Bush, got to know them even further. When he began talking about running for president, I was even more excited. And a number of us got involved and started an organization called Young Professionals for George W. Bush and uh, spent more time with them. And ultimately, I was fortunate to have been invited to join them in Austin when it was a pretty small team. Uh, I had the responsibility initially for the Midwest. That included Iowa. Uh, and at the end of the primary period, uh, the governor and, and Carl and Joe Allball and Karen Hughes and others asked me to be the national field director of the initial presidential campaign, at the end of which uh, we had our 37 days of purgatory in Florida, which was not a pleasant period. Were you the field director for Florida? Was that in your well, It was, and, and I effectively became the field director for, so uh, the lawyers rightly get most of the attention, but uh, my responsibility was to make sure we had deployed and trained people in all of these counties where counting was occurring. Uh, it was actually a period in the 37 days I lost 13 pounds because you would literally go for two days and you would forget to eat because you couldn't leave the counting station and you couldn't look up and you didn't sleep. It was truly an exhausting experience. I remember returning to Austin and people were like, man, what happened to you? It's like in that uh, movie Princess Bride where you're aged all these years. Uh, and uh, But it was an incredible experience. And at the end of it, I was fortunate to have been asked by President-elect Bush to be the White House political director, which I did for the first uh, you know, two years, and then was asked to be the campaign manager for the re-election campaigns. It was an amazing experience. Um, 
And I, I have tremendous appreciation for President Bush, for Carl, for Andy Card, for Vice President Cheney, all of these folks who had the confidence to give me a chance to, to lead and to learn. And, and I, on behalf of the Bush Cheney alumni, especially those in the second term, I want to thank you because <laughs> well, without a lot of your work, uh, many of us would never have had the chance to serve President Bush. So, so thank you. You know, you mentioned your, your upbringing, and I know you grew up in a, a suburb of northern Baltimore. Um, some folks may or may not know this, but your brother, Bruce, is also uh, very active in politics as, a, as a leading lobbyist in Washington. I'm curious. So, and an alum of the, of the Bush Cheney administration. That's right. Served in the Commerce Department in the first term. So what happened at the Melman family dinner table that spurned these two Republican political geniuses? We sometimes uh, talked politics, but we we were not an inherently overly political family in the sense that my mom and dad were not politically active. They were politically interested. They were politically engaged. And there were certainly lots of debates. But these were not people that were active in the sense of involved in campaigns and things like that. But it was something we were both certainly interested in. I more than even he was growing up, uh, very interested in it. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, so we're talking about growing up essentially in the 80s, the example I had was Ronald Reagan. And President Reagan was incredibly inspiring to me uh, as someone whose optimism, someone whose character, someone whose vision of uh, transcending a Cold War and ultimately producing an outcome that produced liberation for uh, hundreds of millions of people came true, as well as unleashing the great American economy. Then I was also inspired by Jack Kemp, who you may remember in the first Bush administration was the secretary of HUD and whose vision of a conservatism that appealed beyond the places where conservatism was usually welcomed and attracted men and women's support in the African-American, in the Latino, in immigrant communities in communities where there had been poverty, where people were being left behind. In fact, I mentioned this to you recently. When I graduated law school, I actually said to my brother, we were talking, one day maybe I can become a campaign manager for a presidential campaign or a, a campaign manager for a presidential campaign or be chairman of the party or senior position in the White House when someone like Jack Kemp is president. And when Governor Bush announced he was running, I felt like that kind of an individual with that kind of vision was the kind of person I was excited to work for. So I have this this image of Ken Melman in high school. Were you a student body government guy? I was not. You were not. I was a good student in high school. I became a much better student in college, in part, I think, when I found a topic area, which was a government major, that I was really into and really excited by. I was president of my fraternity in college. I was president of a uh, eating club at Harvard Law School, but... Um, and I wouldn't call that illustrious leadership. <laughs> I would I would call it uh, leading organizations that 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 you know um, people have lots of views about. But uh, but those were where I kind of cut my teeth, so to speak, in, in learning to lead things. And I have this vision of this sibling rivalry between your you and your brother. He went to Princeton undergrad. You went to Franklin and Marshall. He went to UVA Law School. You went to Harvard Law School. Sort of this step laddering effect. My goal in life is to be the less successful of the two Melman brothers. And, 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 and it, we learned that from our dad. Um, you know, uh, everybody's learned so much from your parents. And one of the most unbelievably awesome things about our dad is that anybody in his life who he loves, he wants to do better than he did. He roots from people all the time. Never competed with my, our mom. 
He never competed with either of us and other people he knows in his life, other friends he has. His only thought with any situation is, how can that person have the best? Neither of us will be as good a man as he is, but we try to follow that approach. So you mentioned you went to Franklin and Marshall, then you matriculated to Harvard Law School, and after Harvard, you took your first job at Aiken Gump as an environmental lawyer. I was, and it was a pretty short period. I was there like a couple years, and an opportunity came to work on Capitol Hill uh, to work for Lamar Smith. And how did you get that opportunity? Because sometimes it's not easy to make a change if you're at a firm or another industry to, to get to Capitol Hill in a, in a job like that. The blessing I've had in my life is that, honestly, that job, then the job with Kay Granger, uh, the job working for Governor Bush, uh, the jobs in the Bush administration, uh, the jobs here were jobs that I was very honored to get, but they were jobs that came to me as much as I look for them. So I was in my office at Aiken Gump enjoying my day, working hard, and one of my colleagues said, I know a member of Congress is looking for a, a senior position, legislative director, policy director. Would you be interested in talking to him? And I said, sure. And I met Lamar Smith, who is a incredible gentleman, Classy guy, smart guy, thoughtful guy. He was going to be a Judiciary Committee subcommittee chairman and a Budget Committee subcommittee chairman. And the opportunity to work on both those committees was very interesting to me. Our chairman of the Budget Committee was John Kasich, someone who I also learned a tremendous amount from and who, from the time I worked as one of his committee staffers, uh, I've always had tremendous respect and affection for. So you really are an honorary Texan, having worked for Lamar Smith, Kay Granger, and, it, and it, President it Bush. It gets even more. George Roberts, the R in KKR, is a Houstonian. So one can argue Aiken Gump. One can argue my paychecks have always been signed by a Texan. There's, te there's Texans by birth. There's Texans by choice. I'm a Texan by employment. What I want to touch on next is after you leave the administration, win the 2004 re-election, uh, then you became chairman of the RNC. And then you went back to Aiken for a short period of time where you were really establishing yourself as one of the leading Republican strategists. It really seems like you could have stayed at Aiken for a long time and built this great legal practice. But instead, almost in the beginning of the financial crisis, you decided that's not what you wanted to do, change course, and you took a jump and went to KKR. Talk about your thinking around that pivot and, and how that came about. I had a great experience at Aiken Gump. Uh, it's a great firm. Uh, I am always say I'm maybe the only person that was a summer associate, associate partner, and now client uh, of Aiken Gump. But look, the way I thought about it was, and I thought about this a lot uh, during the period of the re-election campaign, and, and I thought about what do people do after they've run a re-election campaign? And typically, people that have that question before them are people that are in their 50s, and I was in my 30s. And I really thought, how do I stay true to my roots but let those roots keep growing? And sometimes the way your roots grow best is if you repot yourself, if you put them in a new pot and apply what you know in a different setting. So I had had an incredible experience in, in politics and I'll always be incredibly honored to have done that. At the same time, I said to myself, what are some other venues where the things I understand and know can be useful, can add value, and where I can learn new things? And I had gotten to know the leadership here at KKR in a number of different contexts. And I, as an attorney at Aiken Gump, did some work for them. The work increased, and they ultimately asked me to join the team here, and I was very excited to do that. One of the challenges that I see, and I'm sure you see this as you talk to people, is how uh, former colleagues of ours, how other contemporaries try and transition from government service to the private sector. And the skills you learn in government, how do you translate that to make yourself an attractive candidate for a job in the, the private sector? Obviously, you did that 
from the RNC, the work you did the campaign to come to KKR. You know, how do you think about that transition and how do you advise folks on it? So I don't know if you've read any Clay Christensen. Um, he is a professor at Harvard who's written on lots of different topics, incredibly smart and inspiring leader, in my opinion. And one of the ways he defines innovation is by helping someone else solve a problem they have. So everyone that has had the opportunity to work in government and in politics has learned, we've, we've all learned how to solve certain problems. And the question is, where do you encounter those problems that aren't in Washington, that are in other contexts, and can you help people based on that way of thinking, that different way of thinking, solve one of their problems or gain opportunity? So I came to Henry Kravis and George Roberts and I said, I think there is an opportunity. You're in the business of creating shareholder value. For those of you that are not familiar, our job at KKR is to invest in companies. In some cases, we buy the companies. In other cases, we make less holistic investments in companies in a way that helps those companies grow, in a way that helps those companies improve, and in a way that delivers positive returns for our investors, millions of men and women around the world who are participating in pension funds as our limited partners. And in so doing, those returns help them have a better retirement, a more dignified life. And what I went to Henry and George and said is, I think there's a way, an additional way, to create shareholder value by creating shared value. And that can be accomplished in two different ways. One is, how do we as global investors buy and invest in companies, in infrastructure, and in assets that are providing solutions to big societal problems? And second, how do we, as owners of companies, or as active board members on companies, help those companies not only deliver strong returns for their shareholders, but operate in a way that's more responsible, manage risk in a way that's more effective, and in many cases create benefits not just for the people inside the company, but for other stakeholders who interact with the company. And so that shared value thesis was one where I thought what I had learned about policymaking, what I had learned about coalition building, what I had learned about communication, about leadership, could perhaps be applied at a firm like this, and that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. Ken, as I count, you've changed jobs or employers approximately 10 times in your career. Um, so with each of these job changes, you've, you've undertaken a process of thinking about your current position, what do you want to do next, um, you must have a process you go through when you make these decisions. Talk a little bit about how you kind of reflect on where you are in your career. So I would say that I wish I could tell you I had like a game plan. I haven't. I think in the last probably 10 to 15 years, I've become more focused on thinking at a strategic level, more long term. Most of all, I, I've tried to reflect on the lessons I've learned. And so one of the lessons I've learned, which, by the way, I didn't think this way when I was 30 years old. But this is my, what lessons I've learned from life is I think it is very helpful, at least in my life and my career, to every 10 years reinvent yourself and to develop a plan for the next 10 years. So let me explain what I mean by that. By reinvent yourself, I don't mean kind of every 10 years you have like a midlife crisis. That's not what I mean. And I don't mean in every 10 years you say, I want to change who I am. What I mean is that think how you felt that first day when you showed up in school, probably the first day of college, the first day you had an incredible sensory focus. 
You were, you were a little nervous. You were very excited. You were paying incredible attention. You were at the edge of your seat. You're your best like that, I think. I was among my best performing experiences was in 2003 when then-President Bush asked me to run the re-election campaign. I hadn't done it before. So I was incredibly focused on, on every aspect of how I operated to be as effective as I could be. And because I hadn't done it before, I was willing to think about things that most people who had done it four or five times wouldn't think of because that's not how it's done here. So that doing something new gave me a combination of fresh eyes and it gave me a, the intensity of focus you have when you do try something for one of the first times. And so how do you build that into your life on a regular basis? And that's where it comes to, in my opinion, every 10 years you try to make a significant change to how you operate. It can be in the same position. I've been here at KKR for 10 years. I'm not going anywhere in part because this is a platform that allows me to evolve and allows me to grow. But how do you create a situation where on a regular basis, it doesn't have to be 10 years. The reason I like 10 years is 10 years gives you a good chance to not just try something out for the short term, but to build a plan that can over a reasonable period of time hopefully have a chance of success where you can adjust if you have to. And then at the end of that period, you say, how do I adjust it again? So I return to having those fresh eyes, return to having that first day focus, and at the same time, hopefully, have accomplished something pretty interesting. So that's how I think about it at least. So if a, a former Bush Cheney colleague were to come into your office and sit down and visit with you and say, hey, Ken, I'm thinking about my job situation. I think I need to make a change. What are the two pieces of mentoring advice that you give folks? First is what are you passionate about? What gets you excited? So we're taught, certainly uh, those of us in Generation X, we're taught that the key to life is, and this is really important to life, is showing up early, working hard, being the last person to leave, having a disciplined, focused approach, all those things. Those are incredibly important. But those are how you do things, not what you do. And the people that I know that have had the most extraordinary careers are people that haven't just focused on the how, but have been able to find a what that is their passion. If you have two people, one of whom has been able to build a career around a passion, to have a purpose-driven life, they're, in my opinion, most likely to be successful. The great athletes, the great musicians, the great business leaders, the great politicians have that mindset. That means you dream about your career. doesn't mean, by the way, you neglect your family and friends. doesn't mean you don't have balance in your life. But it means that you're not just doing it to pay the bills. You're doing it for a higher purpose, which will, in my experience at least, get you more focused and more involved. So the first question is, what are you passionate about, number one? And number two, where do you want to try to be in 10 years? And based on where you want to try to be in 10 years, let's put together a systematic and methodical plan that has the potential to let you get there. The other element that I think about when I talk to folks is the power of your network. And when I think of people from the Bush Cheney years who have an incredible network, you're at the top of my list. There are very few people who were housemates with Justice Gorsuch worked with Justice Kavanaugh at the White House and are friends with President Obama. So you've been able to sort of build this bipartisan, <laughs> you've been able to build this bipartisan Rolodex and I'm just talking about the political world here, but now you're doing it in the business world. How do you think about building these networks? And then also, how do you maintain it? Because that's often a challenge so too. So I think the best way to build a network is not to network. 
just to get to know people. So Neil was my roommate, a housemate at at Harvard Law School. Like we're good, we're great buddies because I mean I love the guy. We 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 grew up together. We were Brett Kavanaugh I got to know because he was the White House counsel that was assigned to work with our office and we became incredibly good friends. Uh, President Obama I got to know at law school. Now President Obama is a number of years older than I am. I went right from uh, college to law school. He took several years off. He was a far more mature and serious student than I was. So while he was on the law review, I was like chugging beers. <laughs> so we weren't like buds then. Certainly I knew him, respected him, reached out to him after uh, law school when he got involved in politics. But I think a lot of it is showing other people respect, getting to know them, not because you want something from them, getting to know them because you maybe want to try to help them. The best single way you can build a great network is to help other people. Don't think about what you want from someone. There are two people I know, George Herbert Walker Bush and Henry Kravis, who are as interpersonally effective as anyone I've ever met. And what do the both of these guys have in common? It's never about them. Every time you talk to them, every meeting you have with them, every note from them always asks about you first. Each of them is incredibly effective because they put the other person first. And when you do that, the effect of putting the other person first almost always boomerangs to your benefit as well. So in my opinion, the best way to network is not to network. The best way is not to go in and say, how can I get something from you? It's to help people with whatever their situation is, help them find a job. And the more people you help, the more opportunity over time you'll have based on having helped them. Here's the second thing I would say. What do great investors do? Great investors buy low and sell high. So it's always interesting to me uh, in Washington, everybody wants to meet the senator. Everybody wants to meet the president, the cabinet official. How about helping out the junior legislative assistant in a congressional office or the deputy assistant secretary or the person that your help makes a bigger difference to? First, your ROI is higher, right? They'll never forget it, where the cabinet secretary or the CEO has everyone telling them their suit looks great. Happy birthday. I mean, the second thing that's equally important is if your goal is really to help someone, that more junior, younger person, you're going to have a lot more influence on, and they probably don't have as many people helping them. So that's the second thing I would say. Just be a great investor in relationships the same way you can be a great investor in companies. Find people that are more junior who haven't yet been able to realize their greatness and help them. I want to ask you a couple of quick lightning round questions, just one or two word answers. What was your first job? I was a bagger at Shapiro's uh, supermarket in Baltimore. What was your best summer job? Probably the best, certainly until I became a professional, my most lucrative summer job was the summer between college and law school where for a period, I was the groundskeeper at the Cape Cotter Hotel in Sipawisset, Massachusetts, which because the groundkeeper is paid by the hour and they didn't have a lot of heavy equipment, I actually for several weeks made more money than the chef. They actually said to me, we can't keep paying you. And then for a period, I worked part-time as a busboy and part-time as a Mason's assistant carrying bricks. What's your favorite TV show? Of all time, probably Curb Your Enthusiasm or Black Mirror, two very different shows. How come you never wrote a book? Uh, I don't know. I, 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 I could imagine at some point writing a book. The book will not be an autobiography. The book will be about other people. How and when did you first meet President Bush? 
I first met then-candidate Bush for governor in 1994 when he was running, and he came to the home of Jim Langdon, who was a partner at Aiken Gump, and I was an attorney at Aiken Gump. I had left Aiken Gump. I had either just left or I was an attorney there. He was running for governor, and they were good friends, and I met him there, and I was impressed. What's the first thing you read in the morning other than looking at your work emails, sort of the first news source? I guess the Wall Street Journal. Do you put your phone on airplane mode when you sleep, or do you keep it on all the time? I put it in a different room. I don't even put it in the same room when I sleep. I also don't bring my phone to the gym when I work out. I think having long periods away from your phone is incredibly important to focus, to mental health, and to happiness. What's your favorite memory of your time with President Bush? There were a lot of amazing memories. Certainly, I think that the election night in 2002 – uh, where I had the honor of being invited after I was the White House political director up to the up to the residence, and we spent the night getting great returns. First time since 1934, in a midterm election, a president had gained seats. That was a pretty cool night. Do you have a painting by President Bush? I don't have a painting. No, I need to buy do one. Th- do you think he should paint one of you as a thank you for the 2004? I don't. I think I should buy one of his best paintings as a thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, lead that re-election campaign. What I find is interesting is you mentioned that you've been at KKR for 10 years. And oftentimes when you stay at a company that long, things begin to get stale. You can be typecast into a certain role, but yet you've managed to be very entrepreneurial KKR. And now within the last year, you've become co-head of the KKR Global Impact Fund. You now have public affairs, sustainability ESG, and now you're co-head of a fund Talk about that evolution and how you stay entrepreneurial within a company. First of all, I think they're very much related. As I mentioned to you, when I came to KKR, the thesis I had was that if you were to think about the world from a what problems need to be solved perspective and put an investment lens around that thesis, you could find some interesting investment opportunities. And the impact fund that I'm co-leading with a gentleman named Robert Antablin, who's a great guy, long-term investor in our private equity business, is to identify lower middle market private equity opportunities in companies who their core product or service is to address a big global and societal problem that you can measurably demonstrate what your impact is on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs. Why are we doing this? We're doing this because over the last 10 years, we as a firm, KKR, has invested $4.6 billion in companies where the product or service is addressing an important societal problem. I'll give you an example. A billion dollars has been invested in food safety in China. We were one of the first ones that invested in food safety. Carlisle's made a food safety investment too. We went in there initially at a time in 2008 when most of the dairy, where if you were to purchase milk or cheese, was milk or cheese you couldn't rely upon its safety. And our thesis was that a rising middle class will actually pay a little bit more for dairy that they know is safe and they know is reliable. It ultimately was a fantastic investment for us, and we've done that in a number of different contexts. We've invested $850 million in companies focusing on clean water and water-related issues, about a half a billion dollars in companies focused on workforce development and education and learning. So word of time in history when if you think about big policy imperatives and big societal problems, and then you take and apply to it an investment lens, you have the opportunity to do well from an investment perspective by doing good and solving an important problem. And that's what we're trying to do here. So 
I would say my true north from the beginning has been how do I help KKR invest better based on my understanding of and knowledge of these kind of societal questions. And that's what I've tried to do from the time I've shown up here. Thanks to my colleagues here and the opportunities here, I've been able to expand uh, what those areas are, no question. But I've had that true north, and now the opportunity to raise and co-manage a fund is very exciting to me. We've talked a lot about your different accomplishments and your different positions. Uh, talk a little bit about a situation where you, you stumbled, where something didn't work out, how you responded. And I'm also curious, do you spend time looking back at the road not taken? I make a mistake every day. I think about the mistakes all the time. What have been some mis mistakes and or key moments in my life? So certainly one that I think wasn't just for me, but I think was frankly for the whole Bush-Cheney network was what happened in the 2000 presidential campaign when we came up short in the popular vote. And what we did was, if you remember, uh, those of you that were involved in the period, working with the Republican National Committee from 2001 to 2003, we essentially re-examined every way that we communicate with and engage with voters. And we did a series of tests that we called the 72-hour effort to focus on the last 72 hours of the campaign to figure out how can we do better engaging with and mobilizing voters. I think that was very important to our success in the 2004 re-election campaign. So the reality is, you know what the biggest risk, I would say to everyone, and it's for me too, what's our biggest risk in life? Our biggest risk in life is when you succeed. Because when you succeed, you don't learn anything. When you succeed, you think you were always right, and you think you were entitled to it. When you make a mistake, when you come up short, and we failed to win the popular vote, even though we had four days before the election been two or three points ahead in the polls, we, that was a, that was, that, I viewed that, I was the field director. I felt terribly about that. And I said, I'm going to spend the next three years doing everything I can to learn how I can do better next time. That was an incredibly productive experience from a professional perspective for me. So I think that I try very systematically. I try each quarter, quite frankly, to look back and say, what could I do better? How can I operate better? And you can build that into your life constantly. Ken, in the last several years you've taken the drive you have on the in your professional career and you've begun to spend more and more time with strategic philanthropy you you've been a leading advocate for for marriage equality uh, the work you're now doing with the chan zuckerberg you've got a project underway at franklin and marshall talk a little bit about how you've integrated philanthropy into your life and as part of your, your professional career as well. well first of all i think it again starts off with how uh, our parents raised bruce and me um, my mom was a long-term, very active member, including a national board member of an organization called HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, that was focused on, at the time, helping Russian immigrants, Jewish immigrants in Russia, come to the United States. My dad was the chairman of the board of a large hospital in Baltimore called Sinai Hospital. Uh, both were always very philanthropically active. Both were always very involved in the community, and that's how we were raised. And so uh, that's something I've always believed is important, and I've always been a mission-driven person. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to look for some areas where I think I can make a meaningful contribution and a differentiated contribution. And the opportunity to learn from and help and partner with and work a number of the, with a number of the folks that were involved in the marriage equality effort was, it was a true honor uh, as a volunteer. And now the opportunity to work with uh, the 
incredible professionals at Chan Zuckerberg focusing on things like reforming our criminal justice laws because we believe in redemption and we believe that people should have a second chance. How do we increase mobility? How do we increase education? And as you noted, I'm very involved. If, if I had an area I'm most focused is education. I'm on the board of Teach for America. I'm on the board of Sp Sponsors of Educational Opportunity here in New York. And at my undergraduate college, I started an initiative uh, that is focused on first-generation uh, young men and women uh, who no one in their family has gone to college before. And it's based on the following premise. Uh, President Bush has one of the greatest lines in history. And it's the soft bigotry of low expectations. The worst thing you can ever do, ever, is to lower your expectations for someone else. And I think too often people that have faced in their lives poverty or disease or discrimination or disability, we as human beings, we want to ameliorate their pain, and we should. At the same time, here's what else we should realize. If, heaven forbid, you grew up in a place where you faced these challenges, you overcame them with certain coping and adapting mechanisms like grit, like higher EQ, like an ability to be persistent and to rebound. Those are incredibly powerful skills from a professional perspective and from a human relationship perspective. So how do we teach people that have faced these challenges? First, we're going to reduce your pain. But second, equally importantly, we're going to help you mobilize these coping and adapting special skills you have that Ken Melman didn't have coming up, growing up, because I didn't face poverty, but that you have an advantage over me. And how do we help you mobilize those skills? I often talk to the young men and women in these programs, whether it's the kids at FNM or the people in the SEO program. And what I say to them is, when you show up at college and your roommate is someone who's been in, had three or four generations of college attendance and you're the first generation, you and that person are starting at the exact same place on the track. They were born on the track and they were born with running shoes. You were born way far away and you got here by essentially pulling a sled, a heavy sled through rough territory, and you don't have any running shoes, who do you think has stronger quads? You do. And the question is, how do you mobilize those skills? How do you take the unique capabilities you have and translate them into professional success? And that's what this initiative is focused on. As I hear you describe what you're involved in professionally and philanthropically, the question in my mind is, how do you get this all done? It's an amazing array of, of obligations and, and time commitments. How do you structure your day to accomplish all this? Well, first, I'm not as anywhere near as good as I should be. I'm, I overcommit a lot. There's actually a book that I have read twice that I need to read more that everyone in this uh, podcast should read called Essentialism, uh, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. And I don't do that anywhere near as well as I should. What I do try to do and what I am fortunate in is that each of the things I've described are things I'm passionate about. It's not work. So the efforts I have been able to work on at KKR over the last 10 years, very broadly and specifically, are things I believe in, are things I have enjoyed working on, and are areas where, while would I rather sometimes be reading a book at the beach? Sure. But overall, I'm into them. So I want to spend time on them. Same thing is true with the philanthropic. 
I would also say I've been for a long time someone that very much believes in 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 healthy living, which to me is three things. One, getting a good amount of sleep. Second is working out regularly. And the third is making sure that uh, you are able to, in addition to those two, eating in a healthy way. And if you do those three things, I think that gives you more energy. Look, uh, I remember after the 2004 campaign, one of the p- best pieces of advice my brother gave me was he said, you're used to getting up at 5 in the morning because of going on the Today Show all the time. Keep doing it. So if you, 5.15, if you're you know, walking around Chelsea, New York, you'll see there are not a lot of people on the street. You'll see one, that's me, walking to the gym. Two more questions. Obviously, a lot going on in the world today from the political environment, economic environment. How do you assess the current landscape as you sit here at KKR and think about things you're looking to achieve? And the last question is, when we sit down in five years and you've implemented your next five-year plan, what does 2024 look like for Ken Melman? So on the first point, look, we look, we think very aggressively about geopolitical and societal related issues all over the world and different things in different places. So uh, if you're asking me what I think about in Asia, for example, uh, if you step back at a 30,000-foot level, uh, the greatest miracle in maybe human history, which is there is the largest number of people in the world, and this is mainly because of China and India, who call themselves middle class than we've ever had. There's a billion people whose parents and grandparents lived in poverty, faced horrible disease, malnutrition, who today don't live as subsistence living anymore. At the same time, there's no question there are tensions that exist around technology, around trade, around national security issues that we have to also consider and think about. Uh, In the United States, I feel like in some ways um, this is the best of times and this is the worst of times. Um, The economy is doing incredibly well. Um, There are illnesses that 10, 15 years ago killed people that today we have a way to address and we can manage and they are now chronic. Because of technology and other tools, people who previously we didn't think could learn are able to learn in a way that they weren't able to before. There's unbelievable opportunity. Yet, think about the opioid crisis. There's horrible pain in our society in a way that there hasn't been before. There's a level of loneliness that people like Ben Sass have written and talked about that is very disquieting and problematic. And there is a tribalism that I think is, 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 the, is the opposite of America. E pluribus unum is what our country's about. What's different about America than any other place in the world is anybody can come here and be an American. Anybody. That's our greatest strength in history. And it's undermined when people embrace tribalism. And so we need to deal with that in in a huge way. Related to that, the political dysfunction that occurs and it's occurring in our system, whereby too much incentive is built around simply winning for your team as opposed to recognizing that real change only occurs when everybody has skin in the game with respect to that change. One follow-up on that. Do you see a catalyst to break this sort of political tension you just referred to? I think that it's going to require leaders that are willing to recognize it's not about simply winning for their team. And in many ways, uh, look, I'm gonna, I'll praise, I'll praise uh, the gentleman that followed up, President Bush. When President Obama said, uh, we're not going to uh, go after people, who were trying to keep America safe after 9-11, even if we disagreed with the 
interrogation tactics they took, that was the right approach. That was the right strategy. When President Bush came into office and said, I want Ted Kennedy to help me write an education bill, that was the right strategy. And that was the right approach. And there's things positively happening today. The recent opioid legislation that the Trump White House, along with leaders in both parties of Congress, provided. That's a hopeful opportunity. The expansion of OPIC. People aren't paying attention to that. OPIC not only is about to be expanded, but it's going to be able to invest in some of the most hopeful and promising initiatives around the world. Our friend Ray Washburn is very involved in that. He deserves huge credit, as does President Trump, as the people in both branches of Congress with respect to that. So I think there are examples, and we need to see more. So let's finish on the last question then. 2024 for Ken Memon. What do the next five years look like for you? What's on the My agenda? hope would be that um, I'm able to, along with my colleagues here at KKR, uh, continue to create value for the people that invest with us by virtue, in my case, of helping us figure out ways in which understanding and thinking about societal needs and global challenges and public policy provide opportunities to positively make investments as well as to govern companies and manage those companies in a way that creates shared value. And one of the blessings I had in 2004, this is 20 years from 2024, was to have a real seat at the table in an important political campaign that helped provide very positive political outcomes. And I hope I can credibly look myself in the mirror and say, that in 2024, 20 years later, I will be able to also say I have been a real contributor to how people invest in a way that is differentiated, that produces great returns and positive societal outcomes. Ken, thank you very much for taking thank time you. to do this podcast. It was great to see great you to see catch you. up and, and congratulations on all your success. And uh, we wish you the best and look forward to staying in touch. Thank you and appreciate the opportunity. This show was produced by Sarah Langauer.